I'd like to do in the sermon today is talk about the fall holy days just a little bit. Because we are, in just a few weeks, going to observe the fall holy days. You know, there's seven annual, hol- seven annual holy days, and four of them come within a period of three weeks, which I think is indicative of God's plan and God's purpose. It's going to wrap up very suddenly in ways that are going to shock the world. And I hope that we are ready for that. If we just talk for just a little bit, what do the holy days mean to you? And many of you have grown up in the church. Others have been in the church 20, 30, 40 years. For some of you, it's relatively new to keep the holy days. But what do they mean to you? Just think about it for a minute. Because most of us are going to get in a car, get on a plane, and we're going to travel off to some exciting place, whether it's Sunset Beach or Wales or South Africa or wherever. But it's going to be, for most everybody, an enjoyable time, an exciting time, visit interesting places, renew friends and acquaintances, uh, and where it's possible to kind of wine and dine in some very fine areas. But again, keep in mind, not everybody who's keeping the feast around the world has the same blessings and the same opportunities that we have in some of the Israelite countries where we happen to live. We do this as part of our church culture. We do this every year. And I wonder sometimes if we might not take for granted, well, we're going to the feast. We're going to have a good time. We've got plenty of second tithe to spend. And it's going to be great and something to look forward to. It's part of our church culture. It's part of our routine. But could we keep the feast in vain, possibly? Christ addressed the Pharisees in another context. He said, you you, you worship me in vain because you're teaching, uh, instead of the commandments, you're teaching the traditions of men. Now, we keep the holy days because we understand we're commanded to do that. But I think it's possible that, well, this is just what we do. And I wonder if it's possible to take for granted what we do or take for granted the understanding that God has given to you and to his church. Think about it. If you've grown up in a church, if you've been in a church for 20, 30, 40 years, I think it's easy to say, well, this is just what we always do without fully understanding or appreciating the incredible privilege God has given to you and to me to understand what the world does not understand but will come to understand. I want to ask a few thought-provoking questions as we prepare to go through the sermon today, and I hope the questions as we think about them, and I would encourage you to think about them, will make this feast of uh, this fall festival period perhaps be even more meaningful to you than it ever has been before. One of the questions I want to ask is, do you grasp or do you recognize the unique understanding and how unique it is to understand the meaning and the purpose of the holy days? The Jews keep the holy days. They don't understand. 
the full spiritual significance of those days. And we'll explain why. We'll go through why. Many Christians today uh, think this has all been done away with. It's irrelevant for Christians. But we have been given an understanding and for a reason and for a purpose that God is working out on this earth. Do you understand why the church of God keeps the holy days and why other Christians don't? Why would some people who kept the holy days for 20 or 30 years give up keeping the holy days? What have they come to understand now that they didn't understand all the time that they were keeping the holy days? Can you explain to yourself and to others, if they ask, why you believe what you do? why you keep the holy days, and why you don't keep Christmas and Easter. We're admonished in 2 Peter 3.15 to be able to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. Do you have a hope within you? Are you just going along with what the church teaches? Or do you have a focus? You know, the opening prayer individual that gave it asked that we would be stirred up, that we would get on fire for what we believe. I think as we begin to understand the unique understanding God has given us, that should be a very powerful motivating factor. Do we understand what is unique about the fall holy days? It makes them different from the spring holy days. I want to go through some of these things this afternoon. I want to talk about the fall holy days. We'll talk about the holy days just a little bit here in the beginning, but I want to focus on the fall holy days for most of the sermon. And I want to focus on what and why this makes you and the church of God unique in keeping these holy days. Let's look first of all at the question <clears throat> Do you recognize the uniqueness of the understanding that God has given to his church about the holy days? Why is it unique? I've been teaching a class currently on Old Testament survey. and going through a number of Bible handbooks, most of which are written by Protestant scholars. Also checking some Jewish sources. It's interesting to note what they talk about, what they say, and what they don't say. What they just don't make any comments about. And yet these things are in the Bible. As I mentioned, what's the difference? We keep the holy days, the Jews keep the holy days. What's the difference between the two? You might check some sources. The Jews keep the holy days, but look at, at what they understand about those days. They're historical. They're to remind the Jews of how God intervened in their past and so that they remember how they were delivered from Egypt They look back historically. A future dimension is not really there in many cases. We'll illustrate this in just a minute. As far as Christians, most Christians today don't keep the holy days. They know they're, well, they're they're, they're kind of Jewish. (laughs) That's basically what most Christians teach. Well, they're, they're Jewish, they're Old Testament, they're Old Covenant. They really don't relate to us today. 
because we've been liberated from the law and all these old things. Most Christians never ask, well, why do we keep Christmas? Well, that's when Christ was born. Why do you keep Easter? Well, that's when he was resurrected. There's no command in the Bible to teach or to keep Christmas. There's no command in the Bible to keep Easter. And the fact that these things came out of a pagan background doesn't really seem to matter because, of course, we don't keep them for pagan reasons. You know, we don't bow down to any idols or anything like that. But the fact that, you know, God makes comments in the Bible, don't learn the way of the heathen. Don't do those things. Don't worship me the way they were worshiping their gods. Well, that's all Old Testament. We don't worry about that. See, the understanding that you have been given, the church has been given, is very different from the way the world understands these things. The Jews do it because God commanded them, but they have this Old Testament perspective. Well, it's historical. And we need to remember those things. But there's a future dimension that is missing. Let's notice just a couple of things. Why does the church of God keep the holy days? Why does the church of God understand what it does about the holy days? And this is where prophecy comes into play. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and Malachi chapter 4, these are prophecies given at the end of the Old Testament, towards the end of the Old Testament period of the prophets, but it's looking ahead, talking about things that are coming, that will come down the road. In Malachi chapter 3, a prophecy of a messenger. It says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the me here is talking about Jesus Christ. So a messenger is going to come and prepare the way for Jesus Christ. And the Lord whom you seek will come suddenly to his temple, even the messenger of the, the covenant, talking about a new covenant here. Verse 2, it says, Who can endure the day of his coming? Well, plenty of people endured the day of Christ's first coming. But when he comes back again, as we will see just a little bit uh, into the sermon, the world is going to be shaking to its foundations. That's the context of what is being stated here. Who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. And he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. Things are going to be very sobering when Christ returns. Let's go now to Malachi chapter 4 again, looking ahead into the future. Malachi chapter 4, verse 1, And behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. In other words, burned up. The day is coming. The day which is coming shall burn them up. Down in verse, uh, just jumping ahead here, in verse 4, it says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant. So in the context of the return of Jesus Christ, we see this admonition, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. In other words, at Sinai. With the statutes and judgments. Remember these things in the context of the second coming. Behold, I will send you, Elijah the prophet, before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. This is the second coming of Jesus Christ. 
And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Let's look at one other prophecy in Isaiah chapter 40, talking about the role of this person or the one that would come preparing the way for the return of Jesus Christ in Isaiah chapter 40. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and she is, has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So it's talking about someone's going to come as a messenger, preparing the way for the Lord, making straight a highway in the desert. In other words, restoring things. These are prophecies of someone or some organization that would come and do these things. Let's go to Matthew chapter 17. Christ was talking with his disciples. He was going to return to this earth. He was going to come back. And the disciples ask him questions. The disciples ask him questions, and he makes comments. He answers their questions. In verse 9 of chapter 17 of the book of Matthew, it says, Now, as they came down from the mountain where Christ had been transfigured to show them what a spirit being is going to look like, Jesus um, commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one. Until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And they're referring to the scriptures we just read in Malachi chapter 4. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Elijah truly is coming first and will restore all things. Notice he's talking about will come and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has already come. Elijah can't be there already and then still come in the future. It's got to be talking about two different individuals, two different settings. Elijah is coming and restore all things, but I say to you, Elijah has come already. And they did not know him, but they did to him whatsoever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man also is about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. So Jesus indicated that John the Baptist fulfilled those prophecies in Malachi initially. Initially. But the implication from Christ's comments as well as from the context of the prophecies we read in Malachi is that someone else will come and restore all things. I think it's very interesting that um, the Church of God under the leadership of Mr. Armstrong, did begin restoring many things. We've talked about restoring 18 truths. One of those truths was the meaning of the holy days. The meaning of the holy days, what they mean. My understanding, as I recall, Mr. Armstrong didn't really know what the meaning of the holy days was. And I think he was challenged by some lady, and she said, well, do you know what they mean? He said, no. They're, they're the plan of God. They picture the plan and purpose of God. This was knowledge that was retained, kept. 
among the church of God people. And he came to understand what they meant. Now, it's interesting, some people today have been told that you know, there is no plan. Jesus is the plan. Well, write out the holy days. You write down Passover, what does it mean? It's a reminder of the death of Jesus Christ. That lamb that was killed in the Old Testament without blemish was the lamb picturing Jesus Christ. That's what that day means. It's a reminder of the fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins. The days of unleavened bread picture putting sin out of our lives, something we have to do as part of the plan of God. The day of Pentecost pictures the outpouring of God's Spirit. The disciples were keeping the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And it will be kept in the coming kingdom of God as part of the steps of the plan of God. Once you repent, once you have your sins forgiven, you begin putting sin out of your life, then you need God's Spirit to guide you and help you grow. This is part of the plan that God is working out on this earth. So this idea that there is no plan, that people in the church of God have been told that Jesus is the plan, is wrong. It's wrong. It's very misleading. And people have bought the farm in buying into that. Jesus is part of the plan. Jesus is going to bring the plan to pass. But that plan involves more. Notice just very quickly, we've gone through this once before, but we need to be able to explain what we believe and why we believe it. In uh, Isaiah chapter 46, you're just dealing with this concept. Well, there is no plan. You know, Jesus is the plan. No, Jesus is part of the plan. And he's going to bring that plan to pass. In Isaiah chapter 46, you know, Isaiah is challenging his critics. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 8, 9, and 10. Isaiah says, Remember this and show yourselves men. In other words, get the facts. You quit playing games. Acknowledge what the facts are. Show yourselves men. Stand up <laughs> and be counted. Recall to mind, O you transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God, there's none other. I am God, and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. I have declared the future from you know, thousands of years ago. Nobody else can do that. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand. Now, the word for counsel here in the Hebrew is Esa, E-S-A, and it means plan. It means purpose. My plan will stand. I think sometimes the word counsel doesn't quite convey the, the full meaning here. My plan will stand. My purpose will stand. It's going to work out that way because I'm God and I'm going to bring it to pass. So there is a plan. There is a purpose. We go now to Acts chapter 20 quickly. Paul is talking with the elders in Ephesus and he's kind of reviewing what he's done with them what he's given to them to understand, what he's talked to them about. In verse uh, 22 of Acts chapter 20, picking up the story flow. 
And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city. In other words, I've got a feeling something's going to happen, saying, chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, doesn't faze me at all. Nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You know, we had some things going on here in the States a year or so ago where some people were saying, well, the gospel is not about grace. It's only about the kingdom of God. What did Paul say? He's talking about the gospel of the grace of God. You and I sit here today because of the grace of God. You know, as our speaker was saying, he wasn't really interested in what he first ran across. <laughs> it challenged him. It challenged me, too. I remember I just bought a set of philosophy books and uh, bragged to my younger brother about it. He said, what do you buy that junk for? And I thought, what do you know that I don't know? <laughs> and I pretty much asked him that, and he threw a couple booklets at me, one of which was America and Britain and Prophecy. And I read it, and it, it made sense, like nothing else I'd ever read made sense. See, when God begins to work with a person's mind, he has ways of getting our attention. I was in medical school or graduate school at a medical school at that time, and I was reading the Bible, and uh, I think I read through one of the, it was in Kings, I believe it was, one of the kings had uh, sought not to God but to the physicians. And I was reading a, a text on... Uh, and the history of medicine, they said, well, see, even in the Old Testament, they con consulted you know, physicians. Well, when you go back and read that verse, it says he didn't look to God, he looked to physicians, and he died. <laughs> the textbook on medical history stopped reading at a certain point. And I thought, whoa, you know, they're quoting, but they're not reading the whole verse. They're stopping halfway in between. You know, the gospel of grace is an important part of the gospel. None of us deserve to be called. None of us deserve to understand the plan of God. You know, we're not better than anybody else. You know, Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, Not many wise, not many mighty are called, but God has called the foolish and the weak of this world. That's us. That's us. You know, he called the Israelites when they were slaves in Egypt, not because they had beat up everybody on the block. No, they were in slavery at that time. He said, look what I'm going to do with you if you'll just follow my instructions. God seems to have a sense of humor as to who he can work with and let the world know, look what I could do with these people. They were on the bottom. They followed my ways, my laws, and they're walking, you know, on the highways and the byways of this world. They've been blessed incredibly. So the gospel of grace is really part of the gospel. But Paul goes on and says, Indeed, now I know that uh, <clears throat> you all, he was probably a southerner, <laughs> now I know that you all, among whom I have gone, preaching the gospel of, or preaching of the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore I testify... To you this day, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. In the Greek, this word is boule, B-O-U-L-E, which means plan. It means 
purpose. I have not declared or not uh, shunned to declare unto you the whole plan of God, the whole purpose of God, which is pictured in the holy days. Christmas and Easter don't picture the plan of God. They just don't. But the holy days do picture the plan of God, and God has given us the opportunity to understand that. One other couple of, couple of other scriptures very quickly in Ephesians. In Ephesians. And this is mentioned in the booklet on God's holy days, God's master plan. God has a plan that we just saw. Paul understood that. Isaiah understood that. And if we look at uh, Ephesians very quickly becomes obvious that Paul was explaining this to the church at Ephesus. It was basically a Gentile church. Start in verse 4 of chapter 1 of Ephesians. Actually, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In other words, God has this plan that would involve calling and training people, a small group of people called First Fruits, that we should be holy and without blame before him, having predestined or predetermined us to the adoption of sons or as sons by Jesus Christ. Verse 9, skipping ahead, having made known to us the mystery of his will. The world doesn't understand, but those that God is calling have been given an understanding a unique understanding, an incredible understanding. You know, to understand why the American and British peoples have been blessed. It's not a racist thing. It's just a fact of history. You know, I've been to the Middle East and you come back from there. I've been to Africa. You come back from there and you fly over England and Ireland and you just look down at the green that you hadn't seen for weeks. And there's there's no getting away from it. they're, They're blessed They're blessed incredibly. You go down to Mexico, go to South America in many cases, then come back to the U.S. It's like the promised land. There's an abundance here, and even an abundance in this country that is not in the U.K. And Mr. Meekin was saying, you, you have so many things here, so many things, and they're so big. Some of those things are coming over there, but uh, the Europeans will probably get them first. <laughs> no, there's, there's no way that you can't miss those things when you travel a little bit. You know, the people coming out of Africa as, as uh, immigrants or out of Eastern Europe, they come across Europe, they get to France, and the French say, keep going, <laughs> keep going, and they view England as a promised land. You know, they can go there and they can say, well, we don't like the, you know, you're not giving us enough money. So they're given more money. Well, I don't like the apartment you gave us to live in as refugees. Give us a bigger one. So they get a bigger one. See, this is the real world. This is what's happening today. Why are they coming to England? Why do people want to come to America? You know, we lived in San Diego or in uh, in Pasadena for a number of years. We also lived in Phoenix, which is not too far from the Mexican border. And when you would drive down, especially to San Diego, they would have checkpoints there with the border patrols and so on, and a big bus is sitting there. 
and they're catching these people coming across the border as illegal immigrants. They fill up the bus, send them back to Mexico. <laughs> a week later, they're back again. Why? Because there's jobs here. There's an abundance here that doesn't exist in most of the countries south of the border. Why? Are Americans better? No. God made promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their descendants. He says, I'm going to bless you above all the other nations of the earth because I've given you my laws and I want to bless you to show that this is the way to go. This hasn't happened in other countries around the world. I mean, there's got to be something that explains why the world is the way it is. You know, there was a European author, journalist, uh, Barzini. He's an Italian, about the same age as Mr. Armstrong, wrote a book on the Europeans. He had a chapter on the, Amer on the British, had one on the Americans too, I think. But a chapter on the British, a chapter on the French, a chapter on the Italians, chapters on some other countries. And he said, uh, during the Elizabethan period, probably the Victorian period, he said, the Europeans were trying to figure out how did the British do it? <laughs> There's this little island off the edge of, of Europe, and how did they do it? How did they wind up with an empire? And they figured, well, it must have been something in the preparatory schools where they trained all these kids the same way. <laughs> but they were looking for some secret. They don't understand the prophecies in Genesis chapter 48 and 49 where God said, I am going to give to you, the descendants of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, something I'm not given to other people. See, this, this explains why the world is the way it is. But there are also prophecies that talk about if you turn your back on me and if you despise my laws and my statutes, yeah, we, can't hand the, we can't hang the Ten Commandments on the walls in many public buildings in America today because we'll offend somebody. We'll offend somebody. And yet in England, probably more so than here, they're teaching kids in school uh, the meaning of the uh, Muslim holy days. And they've got to learn those things. But to put up the Ten Commandments or even to talk about God... You notice Tony Blair didn't say much about religion until he got out of office. And then he started talking about his convictions and converted, converted to Catholicism. And Mr. Blair appears to be an opportunist. Whoever leads Europe will have a much better chance to be leading Europe as a Catholic and not a Protestant. He had some visits with the Pope as he was leaving office. It's going to be interesting to watch to see where some of these things go. But there is a plan and there is a purpose that is being worked out on this earth. Paul talks about a purpose here. Verse 9, let's complete this. Having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. You can't predetermine something or predestine something if you don't have a plan. God predetermined to call a small group of people and call them first fruits because they fit into that plan. Down in verse 11, in whom, talking about Jesus Christ, we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to his counsel. And my guess would be that same word is here, according to the, the purpose of his will. 
point I want to make here, brethren, is God has revealed to his church the meaning and the purpose of the holy days. The meaning of the holy days that they picture a plan and a purpose that God is working out on this earth. Protestants don't understand that. They've been deceived because, well, keeping Christmas, we're just, we're just worshiping God. And keeping Easter, well, it's a nice tradition, you know, and everybody's doing it. And little kids start rolling Easter eggs that are pagan fertility symbols. has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. has nothing to do with the plan of God. And yet very sincere people do that. We've been to the Vatican a couple times, and you go through these Catholic churches in Europe, and very sincere people there. Down in front of this idol, they're praying. Tears are coming down their cheeks. They don't understand what their church is teaching and where the teachings came from. They've been deceived. And yet God has called us out of this world. You know, wiped away the blindness in that sense. Do we understand that? Do we appreciate that? Well, this is just what we always do. You know, we, we go to the feast. No, we go because God commands us to go and he wants us to be able to prepare to teach the world these things. The understanding of the plan of God and the purpose of the holy days was one of the 18 truths that Mr. Armstrong felt that God had revealed to him. And I know in my own case, coming into contact with the church of God was the first time I'd ever heard about these things. And the first time it all began to make sense. You know, we never want to take for granted what God has opened our minds to understand. And yet we've had people sat right in congregations like this went to the feast for 10, 15, 20, 30 years, now feel very enlightened because they don't have to keep these holy days anymore. How did that happen? How do things like that happen? Let's look at a couple of other things. Why do we keep the feast? Why don't other Christians? In Matthew chapter 4, and these are very fundamental scriptures, very simple ones to understand. Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus was calling his disciples, <clears throat> what did he tell them? Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. Now Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me. Follow me. Follow my example. Do what I do. Teach what I have taught you, and I will make you fishers of men. You're going to give up your fishing business, but I'm going to give you information, ways of reaching people. Follow me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, you don't need to turn there, but you might want to put that in your notes. Paul said, follow me as I follow Jesus Christ. Now, you can ask yourself these questions. Did Jesus ever keep Christmas, his own birthday? Did he ever keep Easter? No. Christ never kept Christmas. He never kept Easter. These things came along much later. Did the apostles keep Christmas? No. Did the early church keep Christmas or Easter? No. Then why would Christians do it today? We're enlightened. We don't have to keep those old laws. But for hundreds of years after Christ was crucified and resurrected, the church kept the holy days. 
kept the Sabbath until it was changed, trying to accommodate pagans that were coming into the church. That's the story. You know it, but don't forget it. Jesus said, follow me. Just a quick example. Let's go to Luke chapter 2, verse 41. Luke chapter 2, verse 41. This is how Jesus Christ was raised. This is how many of you have been raised if you grew up in a church. Luke chapter 2, beginning verse 41. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. When he was 12, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. So Christ was keeping the feast and the holy days as a young man. In uh, Luke chapter 22, we jump ahead here, probably about 20 years. He's observing the Passover with his disciples the night before he was crucified. Notice his comments. Doesn't sound like he did away with anything. Luke chapter 22, verse 14, And when the hour had come, he sat down with the twelve apostles with him, and he turned to them and he said, With fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. In other words, he's looking ahead. He said, we're not going to do this again until we're together in the kingdom of God. wasn't done away with. wasn't done away with at all. Acts chapter 18, you know, it was Paul that said, follow me as I follow Christ. How did he follow Christ? Acts chapter 18. And we need to, and we need to have these things in our minds so that someone said, well, these have all been done away with. And well, if they've been done away with, how do you deal with these things? How do you explain these scriptures? In Acts chapter 18, Paul is traveling. He came to Ephesus, verse 19, and he left them there. But when he himself entered in the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews, when they asked him to stay uh, longer with them, he did not consent but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem. This is probably 20 years after the crucifixion. He said, can't stay, guys. I've got to be in Jerusalem to keep the feast that's coming. This was what the apostles did. They were following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. You know, why don't Christians keep these days today? What did people who once kept the holy days, what did they run into that caused them to stop keeping the holy days? Have you ever heard of the concept of legalism? You know, one of the young men that was involved in the takeover of the Worldwide Church of God made the statement that we have been freed from the bondage of legalism. This thing that bound us up and tied us up. You think I'm exaggerating. This came off the Internet. I had uh, Mrs. Aguin do a search yesterday. This is what one lady talked about. God's answer for legalism within the church. Now, you think I'm exaggerating. Listen to her comment. I was feeling crushed by legalism within a church, and I waited on God to ask him about it. I saw myself crushed by a big elephant. It was sitting on me. 
I asked the Lord what his solution was. Then the memory of a Big Mac truck being overturned by the winds of a Hurricane Andrew that I had experienced when I was living in Miami in the 1990s came back to me. I knew that the mighty wind of the Holy Spirit was going to push the elephant of legalism off of me. Now, that's sad. That's sad. But this is how people talk about legalism. It's another... quite extensive posting, the sin of obeying legalism. It says the entire book of Galatians deals with Paul condemning legalists for trying to insert one single Old Testament law, circumcision, into the church. God originally ordained circumcision as he did all the other laws, like wearing a beard, resting on the Sabbath, not harvesting the corners of your field. Jesus, born under the law, perfectly obeyed all the Old Testament laws uh, and commanded others under that law, not to depart from them. But Christ's death on the cross fulfilled the law's purpose and freed us from it. Really? He nailed all the ordinances to the cross, and they conclude the Ten Commandments, the Holy Days, everything else under this. It's not talking about that. Christ nailed our sins to the cross. All the laws and shadows of the Old Covenant which includes the Ten Commandments reposing in the Ark of the Covenant, were fulfilled in the new. All the morality of the law necessary for the church has been repeated uh, in the New Testament. The return or to return to Old Testament law, any of it, including the beard, is returning to weak and beggarly elements and is becoming entangled in a yoke of bondage. Now listen to this. This makes the death of Christ of no avail. In other words, if you keep the commandments, if you keep the holy days, then you are basically making the death of Christ of no avail. This is what these people teach. It perverts the gospel. And yet Jesus said, if you love me, what? Keep Christmas. No, he said, if you love me, keep the commandments. Keep the commandments. John said the commandments are not grievous. They're not a burden. This is direct disobedience to the Bible, and this is sin if you keep these things. This is the approach. And then the the thing goes on for about three or four or five pages, basically saying whoever obeys one Old Testament law for salvation or spirituality is foolish, bewitched, disobeying the truth, working in the flesh, and following another gospel. And this is what many people ran into, and this is why they're not keeping the feasts anymore. They have been told, it's all done away with. You are suffering from uh, the burden of legalism. Now remember that when you go to the feast and you sit down and you're having a nice big steak or something. This is legalism. You know, I used to ask our boys when we went to the feast, I said, should we go back home? Let, let's just leave. You know, we've been here at the feast too long. Let's, let's go home. You guys go back to school. And they said, no, Dad. <laughs> Why didn't they want to leave? They were under a burden. They were enjoying it. You know, we went to Jamaica a couple of times, went to Mexico a couple of times, went to England once or twice. They weren't suffering. You know, how many people, how many of you have been out of the U.S. to keep the feast? 
You know, when you keep the feast, you understand the purpose. God said it's going to be a blessing for you. Things are going to go better for you. And yet people have been sold this bill of goods. If you keep one law in the Old Testament, you're going to suffer. You're you're under this elephant that's sitting on you. (laughs) Ain't no elephant. But unfortunately, people have bought this. And if you keep the commandments, if you keep the holy days, you're making the sacrifice of Jesus Christ with no offense. Doesn't make sense at all. But what it does give you is freedom to do whatever you want to do. Well, the Spirit spoke to my heart. And if I want to keep Sunday, then the Spirit's speaking to my heart. Legalism has been one of the reasons why people have thrown away their understanding of the holy days. And they don't understand the plan of God. Many people don't want to talk about prophecy today because, well, that's, you know, that what? I think it makes them a little bit nervous. Because Bible prophecy reveals what's coming down the road, and that's what the fall holy days are all about. What's the difference between the spring holy days and the fall holy days? They all talk about steps in the plan of God. The spring holy days are historical. Jesus Christ died. The Passover. The Holy Spirit came on Pentecost. These are historical events. But the fall holy days are prophetic events. They're talking about things that are going to happen in the future. And it appears we are moving into a period of time when these things are beginning to come to pass. You know, we run the, the, uh, the article in the Tomorrow's World on Prophecy Comes Alive, and these things are coming alive today. You know, back in the 50s, 60s, in the church, and we talked about, well, when prophecy comes to pass, and it's kind of down the road and in the future, We thought it was 1972 for a while, and then we had to revise those things. I remember I'd done an article on prophecy for The Plain Truth. I think it was in 1970 or something like that. And I had submitted it to one or two reviewers before I gave it to the editors. And the comment came back was, you might not want to submit this just now. I said, why not? Well, because there are some people who think that things are going to happen in 1972. I said, really? Because I didn't think that. I'd heard it, but I didn't think it was gospel. (laughs) I thought it was an opinion. And, well, you just might not want to do that. So I I didn't do it. But there were so many people who had bought into that concept. In fact, in one of the speech classes I was in, one of the ministers gave a sermon. He said, I don't know where you people got this idea that 1972 something was going to happen. Somebody came up after and says, from you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful setting dates when we don't know the exact dates. But the fall holy days are prophetic. Now, some people may not want to talk about prophecy, but let's turn quickly to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, Paul is writing to basically a Gentile church here. He's kind of concluding uh, the book or the letter. 
And he's mentioning a number of general principles. He talks about rejoice always, pray without ceasing, don't quench the spirit. In verse 20, the First Thessalonians 5, he says, do not despise prophecies. Don't take lightly Bible prophecy. You might jot in your margin first, Second Peter chapter 1, about verse 20, where Peter makes the comment. Peter makes the comment. How God has given us a more sure word of prophecy. It was not Billy Graham in the 1940s that was talking about Germany coming back to lead Europe. It was not a bunch of these other Protestant preachers. It was Mr. Armstrong that was saying, watch, Germany is going to come back and lead Europe. And Germany had been bombed into smithereens. It was a pile of rubble at that time. But that's not what you see when you go to Berlin today. It's a very efficiently run country. It's been rebuilt. They had pictures, some postcards you could buy in the train station over there of the Germans growing potatoes right alongside the, uh, the Bundestag. And it was just rubble all around. You go there today, and the uh, German Reichstag, the uh, government offices, are all stained, or, you know, plate glass and granite and stuff like that. It's, just, it's a sparkling city. It's all come back. And the Germans have been called the engine of Europe. It's going to be interesting to see what the Germans do if the Europeans get bogged down and can't <laughs> figure out which way is up. We will take control and we will show you how to run this country. Yeah, they do stuff like that. <laughs> they don't like inefficiency. There was an article just recently how the, uh, the Pope has been and the, the Vatican is basically trying to undermine the current government in Italy today. And the Italians recognize that. The Pope is just, is just coming back from a visit to France where the Pope and Mr. Sarkozy have decided that religion needs to play a bigger role in Europe. And the eldest daughter of the church, France, needs to set a better example. And they need to get rid of the law from 1905 that makes France a secular country. Things are happening, brethren. Things are happening that we need to be aware of. So we've got four holy days coming beginning a little over two weeks from now. Four holy days within a three-week period of time that picture the wrap-up, the grand culmination of the plan of God. Let's look quickly at the Feast of Trumpets. <clears throat> Feast of Trumpets, what does it picture? If you go to Leviticus 23, there's only two verses there. Read them yourself. Why don't the Jews fully understand this? It don't say much in Leviticus. As one Bible handbook I was looking at. All it says is it's a holy day, trumpets are to be blown, and an offering is to be given. So where do you look for answers? What does it mean? You've got to go to the New Testament. Let's look quickly at a couple of scriptures in Matthew 24. What do trumpets mean? The Old Testament talks about they're blown in a time of war. They're blown to assemble the nation of Israel. Uh, They're blown in the holy days. What do they mean prophetically? 
you've got to go to the New Testament to understand these prophecies in the Old Testament and also the holy days. In Matthew 24, beginning in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. You know, when I was a kid living in Ohio, there were some fires out somewhere in Kansas. And uh, we didn't know what was happening. We didn't know about the fires. But one afternoon, about 3 o'clock, everything got real dark. And there was smoke blowing east from Kansas. And people began to think, is the end of the world coming? And what's happening here? Because it got very dark. And I think about 6 o'clock that night, we heard there were fires out in Kansas and the wind was blowing this stuff east. But I can remember people walking up and down the streets because it got dark. The streetlights came on about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And people were were wondering, is is this the end of the world? Is Christ going to come? Because they they were aware of these scriptures. It wasn't at that time. The next day it rained and all the smoke was gone and the sun came out again. But it gave people a shock. The sun will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with uh, power and great glory. And he will send his angels with the sound of a trumpet, the great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together the elect from the four winds. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, close to a scripture that we read in the sermonette. See, the Bible makes clear what it means when it talks about these things. And it takes the New Testament to add the full meaning of these holy days and the, the uh, ceremonies that were done. First Corinthians chapter 15 is talking about the return of Jesus Christ. Beginning in verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. This is what the Feast of of Trumpets pictures, the return of Jesus Christ to this earth. If we go back quickly now to Matthew 24, Jesus gave a whole series of events that would take place just prior to his return. You know, this stuff about, you know, Christ might come tonight. You better give your heart to the Lord. But, you know, I've walked down the aisle once. You know, my cousin and I went to a religious service in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania one time. This guy gave a big stirring message about, you know, if you're, if you're a sinner, you need to come up here afterwards and, you know, and repent. And uh, he, he, went, he said, how many of you are sinners? How many of you need to come up here and repent? I saw my cousin put up his hand. <laughs> So I thought, maybe I should put mine up too. <laughs> and then he said, okay, everybody has put up their hand and walk down here after the church, after service is over. And uh, they sang the last song. My cousin says, let's get out of here. <laughs> I said, yeah, let's get out of here because we, we didn't know what we were going to face when we walked up to the front. But, you know, people appeal to people's emotions. Preachers appeal to people's emotions. You know, Christ might come tonight, so you better do something tonight because, you know, you never know. Well, this is a bunch of baloney. 
Jesus was asked by his disciples, verse 3, how are we going to know about the sign of your coming of the end of the age? How will we recognize it? Now, you've got a whole series of things here. Beware, people don't deceive you. Many will come in my name and deceive many. And we've got over 300 groups that came out of the Worldwide Church of God. And they're claiming to understand prophecy and that God's working with them only. Many have come in Christ's name, and they're deceiving many. <clears throat> Talks about other things, wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes. If you just watch world news of what's happening today, and we've been talking about famines and earthquakes making news, these tsunamis that have hit Southeast Asia. They were talking about a drought in Australia. It was the worst in a 1,000 years, they estimate. They're talking about droughts and fires in California. This last summer, they were talking about Atlanta, as big as that city is, only has about 30 days' worth of water supply left. Now, it's been raining, and that stuff has eased off a little bit. They're talking about a financial tsunami that may sweep the economics of this world. It just appears to be around the corner. They're talking about what's happening in Europe, that the German Bundesbank, the German Federal Bank, is saying gold reserves are extremely important. You know who holds the gold reserves in Europe? The Germans, the French, the Italians, not the British. I think Gordon Brown sold a bunch of British gold. And we are so vulnerable today. America, Britain, uh, Australia, Canada. And the article that we did on Prophecy Comes Alive, I think it's in the current magazine, talking about uh, sudden destruction. Prophecy is talking about things are going to happen suddenly. And the impact on America and Britain, Ephraim and Manasseh, is going to be sudden and unexpected. You know, the Chinese, the head of the Chinese Central Bank, said, you guys better straighten out this Fannie Mae, Freddie Mae stuff, or there's going to be a financial catastrophe hit the world. You know, if the Chinese pull their money out of the U.S., and if they do it suddenly, things are going to happen. So what I'm trying to say is we can't just go off to the feast and, oh, we're going to have just a wonderful feast. Well, we should. But we need to keep in mind we're going to be observing the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Trumpets, a period of time that picture what is going to happen to this world. And we need to be prepared for what's coming. Your trumpets pictures those things. The Day of Atonement pictures the binding of Satan. Why are there so many different ideas floating around about religion today? Because there is an individual and there is a power that lies and deceives I remember asking these guys who took over the worldwide church of God. I said, you guys still believe in Revelation 12, 9? What's that? I said, it talks about Satan deceiving the whole world. Well, that, that's, that's old stuff. <laughs> Look around. Look around. You've got two billion Christians, so-called, on the face of the earth. How many are keeping the feast this year? How many understand the plan of God? Now, many of those people are very sincere. Many of those people are very sincere. And we have no reason to kind of walk around and strut around and think we're better than anybody else. 
But God has given you and he's given his church an understanding of his plan that is pictured in the holy days. The Feast of Tabernacles pictures the coming kingdom of God on this earth. Kingdom of God is not the Catholic Church, which the Catholics believe. It's not something in your heart. The kingdom of God is going to be established on this earth when Jesus Christ comes back and sets up his government. And the saints will reign with Jesus Christ. This is why we're here to prepare for this exciting coming time of the coming kingdom of God. Let's look at one other scripture in conclusion. So what's the big deal? Does it really matter if God has given us an understanding and hasn't given that to the world? Does it really matter? Hopefully, brethren, we can understand the unique capacity that God has given us through his spirit to understand the plan of God. Matthew 13, parables here. Jesus gives this parable of the sower, and the disciples realize he's, you know, this has got a double meaning to it. So the disciples come to him, why do you speak in parables, verse 10? Notice what he said to his disciples. He answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mystery of the kingdom of heaven, but it has not been given to them. This is why I'm speaking in parables. I've given you an understanding. I'm not giving that to the world just yet. Jumping ahead, verse 16. But blessed are your eyes. That word in the Greek means to be envied. To be envied are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly, I say to you, many prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, but did not see it. It was not their time. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Brethren, I hope as we go to the feast this year that we can we can appreciate and deeply value the understanding that God has given to his church and has given to you to understand the plan of God, how the holy days picture that plan. It's a sobering plan when we look at the Feast of Trumpets. It's an exciting plan when we look at the Feast of Tabernacles and the last great day. I hope as we go to the feast that we can deeply appreciate what God has called us to understand, and that we can get excited and motivated to prepare for the coming kingdom of God.